an elliptical, difficult prophecy, and it all comes down to making a vulgar hand gesture to God. Well, that's how it goes with Vonnie Fucci. That's what happens here in the seventh of the evil pouches, the malavolja, that make up the landscape of fraud. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is a podcast, Walking with Dante. We have come, as I said, to the seventh of the evil pouches that make up fraud. We are way down in lower hell as we slow walk across Dante's Inferno. We are at Canto 2520. 25. Let's just stop and congratulate ourselves. We are at Canto 25, lines 1 through 16. If you're a Smarty Pants listener, you will notice that that second number, 16, is not divisible by 3. You'll remember that Dante is writing in tercets in three-line stanzas, which means we're going over a stanza break. Fucci's appearance here in comedy lasts over a tercet break as well as over a canto break from 24 to 25. So we are at canto 25, lines 1 through 16. At the conclusion of his words, the thief put his hands up with the sign of the two figs and hollered, In your face, God, I aim them at you. From that moment on, the snakes became my friends, because one wound itself all around his neck as if it wanted to say, I don't want you to speak another word. And another wound itself around his arms to hold him tight, knotting itself so tightly around his front that he couldn't wiggle out. Ah, Pistoia, Pistoia, why don't you legislate your own incineration so that you won't stick around since you go away beyond the corruption of your founders. Throughout all the circles of Dark Hell, I didn't see a single spirit so full of pride toward God, not even that guy who fell off the walls of Thebes. Fuchi fled without uttering another word. That's the passage. It's pretty straightforward. we got a couple things to talk about inside of it. Got to talk about what he does here with the fig. We got to talk about those snakes because there's some really weird theology going on there. (laughs) We got to talk about the reconstitution of the poet of suddenly inserting himself into the pilgrim's journey. And then a little bit about comedy and its motivation as a poem, which might be an interesting speculative question. So let's get to it. At the conclusion of his words, and that's that elliptical prophecy about whites and blacks. It's all in the previous episode of this podcast. Go back and look at it. Episode 147, the end of Canto 24. It's a difficult and uh, dim prophecy that he gives. It's interesting that this figure, though, who is so metamorphosizing, who not only burns up to cinders and comes back again, but also the beast and the rain and the gullet, all that stuff we talked about last time. It's interesting that he has a clear vision of the future. His self may change repeatedly, but he has a clear or at least a firm understanding of what's to happen in the future. And that clear vision of what will happen to the black and white gelfs in the future is then put in metamorphosizing language of the apocalypse and so cast into metaphorical speech. 
way more about that in the next episode. But the thief puts his hands up with the sign of the two figs and hollers, in your face, God, I aim them at you. There's a question about exactly what he's doing here with his hands. Believe it or not, this has been around in commentary for a long time, uh, whether he's putting up his hands to look like, um, well, if you from the U.S., the hook'em horn sign from the University of Texas, where you put up your index finger and your little finger, which you know is a vulgar gesture in some Italian culture even today. There's other questions about what hand signal he's making. In 1730, and that's pretty late, 1730 in commentary. I mean, you could grieve. That's 400 years after Dante, right? 1730. Pompeo Venturi is the first one to suggest that what he's putting up is a gesture in which you stick your thumb between your index and middle finger and make a fist. And this is a vulgar gesture in Italian. It has become now the accepted uh, notion of what he's doing here, making the sign of the fig. In fact, now we know even more that this could be the case because there's actually historical evidence that we now have that Pistoia erected to figs this gesture on the Carmignano Tower, two figs pointing toward Florence in 1228. Given what we know about the historical record, given what we know about possible vulgar hand gestures, let's just say that in in American English, we would say he's giving God the finger. But it, it is some kind of terrible, blasphemous gesture that he makes toward God and make sure that God sees it. In your face, God, I aim them at you. I mean, how many times have you heard the damned even utter the name of God? <laughs> Not so much. So this guy is really blasphemous. And then so is Dante. It goes on. From that moment on, the snakes became my friends because one wound itself all around his neck as if it wanted to say, I don't want you to speak. And another wound itself around his arms to hold him tight, knotting itself so tightly around his front that he couldn't wiggle out. Remember, this whole pit is full of writhing snakes. One has already bitten Fuchi once and thus set him on fire, incinerated him. He collapsed into ashes and then he came back together and reconstituted. But this bit... From that moment on, the six became my friends. That is a difficult little bit of heresy right there. Remember, we've already talked about this. In the Genesis fall narrative, God puts enmity between snakes and humans because of the way the snake tempted Eve to eat of the tree that God said don't eat of. If the snakes are now Dante's friends, then Dante is reversing Dare I push it this far? Metamorphosizing the curse. Dante is treading on very difficult ground here. And I should just tell you that what's ahead in Canto 25 gets more and more difficult. And it is for moments like this that many, many critics see Cantos 24 and 25 as Dante the poet a bit out of control, too much in love with his own ability to make things up because he's stepping on theological problems. You can, Listen, you can take this two ways. You can say that Dante the poet knows what he's doing 
and that he's reversing the Genesis curse here of the war between snakes and humans. And therefore, Dante himself is capable of metamorphosizing biblical texts. We can push it that far. Or we could go the other direction. And if you go the other direction, then where I think you do end up is where a lot of critics end up, which is that Dante is pushing his luck and he's pushing his poetics and he's kind of getting out of control. There's some bits at the end of 25 that seem to indicate that the poet even thinks he may be getting out of control. We'll come to those later in this canto. Nonetheless, you should just know that the Genesis curse is sitting back here and it's somehow being abrogated. Apistoria, Pistoria, why don't you legislate your own incineration, thereby calling back Devani Fucci's fate, so that you won't stick around since you go way beyond the corruption of your founders? You'll note that the poet is never far away from Cantos 24 and 25. The poet keeps erupting in the text. There has to be a reason for that. We talked about this last time, that there are references to writing, the hoarfrost writing, at the beginning of Canto 24. There are references to writing toward the end of Canto 24. The poet steps forward there. The poet steps forward here to offer a condemnation of a central Italian town, Pistoia, it's just just never far away. The poet seems right there as if the curtain is constantly being opened on him. Why is that? What about this pit of thievery brings the poet forward? We're going to talk more about that. Mm, I seem to be saving everything for the next episode. In the next episode, you should know that there's a lot of talk about literary theft that Dante is a thief. He's stealing from Ovid. He's stealing from Statius. He's stealing from Luke, and he's stealing from Virgil. And you're going to hear me say that that's not an adequate answer. But I'm going to save all that, and let's just talk about Pistoia for a second. Pistoia is mentioned here, and we've known this all along, that he that Vanni Fucci stole out of the cathedral in Pistoia. And again, this goes back to our notion that the evil pouches are a tour of Italian towns. So let's just go down them. Back in the first pouch, we had the seducers. We had Venedico Caccianemico, and it was all about Bologna. In the second pouch, with the flatterers, and there we saw Alessio Interminei, and it was all about Luca. So first pouch was Bologna, second pouch was Luca, third pouch, popes upside down in their hulls, perhaps about Rome. A lot of commentators see this as a tour of the towns of central Italy, and we can't really count Rome as a town of central Italy, but I wonder if we shouldn't blow it out a little farther and say Bologna, Luca, Rome, when we get to the soothsayers, It's Mantua, Mantova, because Virgil has to correct the story of the founding of Mantua. Then we get to the fifth pouch, the Baritors, and we're back to Luca and Navarre, the kingdom of Navarre too. But certainly we're back to Luca with that guy that the demon hauls down into the pit at the first, hooked through the back of his Achilles tendons. The demon says, I'm going back up to Luca because there's so many Baritors up there. Luca there. The hypocrites were back to Bologna. Notice we had Bologna to start and then Luca. And now notice in the fifth and sixth pouches, they're reversed. And we have Luca and then Bologna because Catalano and Loro Ringo, our two hypocrites, were from Bologna. 
And now with the thieves, we start out with Pistoia and Vani Fucci. So there does seem to be a conscious effort on the poet's part to run us round the towns. Can we call Rome a town? The towns of Italy. If we dump out the third pit and the Simoniacs and dump out Rome, then we can say the towns of central Italy. We can't really say Tuscany with Mantova there. Uh, not really. A lot of commentators seem to make a mistake right there and place Mantua in Tuscany. It's a little tight and difficult to make that happen, but uh, some commentators seem to catch themselves and say it's central Italy. Listen, I want to kind of pull it out to Rome itself with the third pouch and just say that this is a runaround, a tour of the corruptions of fraud in various Italian cities and towns that Dante would know. Thus, the poet Dante is part of this because this would be what the poet, the real Dante, in fact knows. Okay, what else does our poet say? Throughout all the circles of dark hell, the passage goes on, I didn't see a single spirit so full of pride toward God, not even that guy who fell off the walls of Thebes. This is in reference to Capaneus. Remember Capaneus stretched out on the sands, and we talked about Stasius and the epic of the siege of Thebes, and Capaneus as one of the figures who scaled the walls of Thebes and knocked on it by a, a bolt of lightning. Well, this is a reference back to Inferno. It's, this is somebody we saw in Inferno. Capaneus stretched out there on the sands, on the burning sands, in the circles of the violent there, the violent against God, the blasphemous. And Capaneus was our lead figure of blasphemy. And this figure, Vani Fuji, has just done a blasphemous gesture toward God. So Capaneus naturally comes up. But the, the poet seems to indicate that this blasphemy is even worse than Capaneus's was. Is that because Capaneus's, if you go back to that passage with the violent, is still trying to talk about Greco-Roman gods and not about Judeo-Christian gods? We talked about that in those episodes of the podcast, as where this figure seems, because he was associated with a cathedral in Pistoia, this figure seems to be directed right at the Judeo-Christian gods. Is that the difference? Or is it simply that the passage is further quoting Inferno? <laughs> Look, I mean, look what we potentially got here going on. We've had Ovid all around us. We may have Virgil's Aeneid in here. We may have Stasius in here we, with Capaneus. And then we may have the Inferno basically referencing itself in here. You're getting a lot of passages again. They're running in every direction around us, intriguingly complicated in terms of its poetics. But it ends. The last line, Fuji fled without uttering another word. Off he goes. It's I, I added the word. I have to tell you, Fuji, it's really in the text. He fled without uttering another word. But if you just leave it in English like that, it sounds like Capaneus is fleeing without another word, the reference from the last line. And that's not the case. It's Fuji's running off all wrapped up with snakes around his neck and his arms and all that stuff. You know, in the end, here's the deal. 
Remember, Fuji said, I'm telling you this in order to make you suffer. But Dante gets the last laugh. While we may have left that at Canto 24, with the pilgrims suffering under the prophecy that Fuji utters about the black-white conflagration in Florence and Pistoia and across central Italy, nonetheless, inside the poem itself here, the poet gets the last laugh. Fuji is tortured by the snakes. Undoubtedly, he will be incinerated again by a snake bite, constantly for eternity being burned up and reconstituted and running off here, unable to speak. So although he gave a giant prophecy and a giant speech, he's lost now the ability to speak. I don't know for eternity, but at least for this current moment. And Dante gets the last laugh, which brings us to this question. Is comedy a revenge fantasy? Hmm. <laughs> There's a question for you, and it sounds a little vulgar to ask it. It sounds a little, uh, what do I want to say, a little blasphemous to ask it. Is comedy a revenge fantasy? Dante, the poet, is taking his revenge on various figures. We've already seen that revenge played out in other places inside the poem. Nicholas anticipating Boniface arriving in the third of the evil pouches. And here again, with a figure who may or may not have been connected to Dante, but certainly wants to predict something that will hurt Dante. Then Dante getting the last laugh. So there is a way, and it's far too simple to say, a way that we can talk about comedy as revenge fantasy, as the ultimate revenge of a guy on the run in exile trying to get back at, at, at others who have harmed him. Is that the only motivation for comedy? Of course not. Every great writer has hundreds of motivations. I'm sitting here thinking about uh, Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway. I'm thinking about the way that Woolf is working out her own sexuality, working out her own uh, same-sex attractions, how Wolf is working out the problems in her own marriage and the way that her marriage seems to be unsatisfying, how Wolf is not only doing that but trying to work out the fear of perhaps more war, the terror of World War One, and the terror that is lingering that more war is coming, the nightmare scenarios of suicide inside the book, which in some sense, uh, I don't know what, predict... I anticipate Wolf's own suicide. I mean, writers have hundreds of motives for what they write. So when I say comedy is revenge fantasy, don't jump away from me and say, gosh, how, how dare you drag it through the mud like that? Writers have lots of reasons why they write. And here, by getting the last laugh, we might be able to say, hey, in the long run, comedy is also about the settling of scores. So what I'd like to do before we finish off this podcast, since it was fairly short and the passage was fairly short, I'd like to read you the entire Vani Fucci episode. I'm going all the way back to Canto 24, line 79, and I'm bringing it all the way through Canto 25, line 16, and I'm not doing any sound effects, any voices, any anything. I just want you to hear the narrative sweep of the passage because it's important to see that Dante is building a story. We descended the head of the bridge where it joins up with the eighth embankment. Now the pouch was made clear to me. I saw a horrifying pileup of snakes in it and of so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood. Libya, with all its sand, has nothing to brag about. 
about, even if it's full up with Caledri, Ciaculli, and Ferrere, with Chincras and Amphispene. It hasn't ever had, not even with all that's in Ethiopia and even in the lands out beyond the Red Sea, as much pestilence as this, nor as repellent either. In the middle of this cruel and nasty abundance, people were running around naked, crazed with fear, without a crevice to hide in, or even a heliotrope. Their hands were lashed behind their backs with snakes, who had stuck their heads and tails through their crotches and joined themselves in knots in front of their stomachs. Lo and behold, Right at one of the shades who was near our bank, a serpent shot out toward him and clamped itself onto the spot where the neck and shoulder blades are corded together. Neither an O nor an I was ever written so fast as that soul caught fire, burned up, and was morphed into cinders just as he collapsed down to a pile of ashes. But then, as he was lying on the ground all unmade, the dust reassembled itself together and immediately he came back to how he was in like manner the great sages tell us the truth about how the phoenix dies and is born again just as it comes up to its 500th year it doesn't feed on grasses or grains in its life but on the tears of incense and on black cardamom and its final nest shroud is made up of nard and myrrh like a guy who falls down without really knowing why, either forced to the ground by a demon's tug or paralyzed in some way that lays a guy out. When he gets back up, he looks around all astonished, completely lost in the middle of the suffocating agony he's endured, just gawking and sighing. And so this sinner got back up on his feet. Oh, the sheer power of God. It's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vendetta. Then my guide asked the guy who he was, so he came back with this. I rained down from Tuscany a little while ago, right into this fierce maw. I liked to live a bestial life, not a human one, so it's no surprise that I was a mule. I'm Vanifucci, the beast. I dinned down in Pistoia. I, to my guide, tell him not to slink away by asking him what sin got him thrown down here, because I know him as a bloodthirsty and cruel man. When he overheard me, the sinner didn't play around. Instead, he did an about-face to confront me head-on and got painted with acrid shame. He said, it causes me more suffering that you have caught me in the misery where you see me now than I ever felt when I was torn out of my former life. I can't even nix a reply to what you ask. I got shoved down here because I swept the gorgeous pieces from the church's sacristy, although others took the blame for the crime. And so that you may not take any joy from seeing me down here, and if you ever get away from this dark spot, open your ears to what I've got to say and catch this. Pistoia first gets rid of its blacks, then Florence renovates its people and ways. Next, out of the valley of Magra, Mars pulls a lightning bolt out of a bunch of threatening clouds, along with a sudden and bitter tempest as they hurry on to war above Campo Piceno. That bolt will tear clear the mist and fog so that the whites will feel the hard blows. What's more, I'm just telling you this to make you suffer. At the conclusion of his words, the thief put his hands up with the sign of the two figs and hollered, In your face, God, I aim them at you. From that moment on, 
the snakes became my friends because one wound itself all around his neck as if it wanted to say, I don't want you to speak another word. And another wound itself around his arms to hold him tight, knotting itself so tightly around his front that he couldn't wiggle out. Oh, Pistoia, Pistoia, why don't you legislate your own incineration so that you won't stick around since you go way beyond the corruption of your founders? Throughout all the circles of dark hell, I didn't see a single spirit so full of pride toward God, not even that guy who fell off the walls of Thebes. Fuchi fled without uttering another word. It's so nice to be able to see the sweep of the story. And the story's not over. There's more to it. More about poetics, more about metamorphoses, so much more ahead of us in the 25th canto here in the seventh pit with the thieves. So subscribe to this podcast, like it, rate it. Listen, even a rating like nice podcast does a world of good. I really appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough, or hashtag at Walking with Dante. I'll find you. I'll follow you. You follow me. And we can talk about Dante at any moment that you desire. I am having a blast doing this. I hope you are too. Come back for the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. See you then.